welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. chapter of the book of Joshua. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9 of Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Christ Covenant Church, it is a joy and an honor and privilege to be with you this morning. I have taken so much joy in seeing the work that God is doing in Lewis County through this church. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we worshiped with the Stout family and got to know them a year before um, uh, you guys got this work started. And uh, just to see God's faithfulness to you as a people is so encouraging. And I am also so excited that um, 
I am now going to be working with so many of you as we get this school off the ground. Um, I've already been just so encouraged by the people to see their devotion to Christ and his kingdom, his devotion to the children of this church, and to the future of the Centralia area, where uh, our hope and prayer is to see uh, this school rooted as a place where uh, Christian kids can receive a Christian education. I can already uh, tell that your prayers have been with me, and it's been a great encouragement. And I pray that this morning, as I have the honor and privilege of bringing God's word to you, that I would be able to uh, be an encouragement to you as well. Now, if I could open this morning's sermon by quoting an esteemed American pastor. Get up in the morning and invite good things into your life. I am blessed. I am strong. I am talented. I am disciplined. I am focused. I am prosperous. When you talk like that, talents get summoned by Almighty God. Go find that person. Health, strength, abundance, discipline starts heading your way. Now, if this quote sounds foreign or strange or even radically unbiblical, and I hope it does, that it is because it is from one of the most widely known purveyors of what's been called the prosperity gospel, Joel Osteen. The prosperity gospel is a perverted form of Christianity that says that God's plan is for you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're not, it's because of your own lack of faith and your own failure to claim what is rightfully yours. And I hope that it's not too much as I come here this morning to speak to you, the people, that you know that this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, as Christians who reject the prosperity gospel, we do have a serious reality that we need to face. And that is we are a prosperous people. I realize each one of us might have a different definition of prosperity, and some of us may see our own selves as more prosperous than others. But the reality is, as Americans who live in the 21st century, we have been immensely blessed. We've been blessed with wealth and health. We've been blessed with many of the conveniences that have been allowed by modern advancements in technology and medicine. And as Americans, we have a prosperity that's not known everywhere in the world, and certainly as modern people, uh, we have a, a prosperity and a comfort that has really been unknown throughout human history. So as Christians who reject the prosperity gospel, we need to be able to think biblically about our prosperity. And we need to be able to answer crucial questions in relation to it. So as we turn to the opening chapter of the book of Joshua this morning, we'll be considering a crucial point in biblical history in, in which God is about to bring great temporal blessings to his people. He is about to bring his people into a season of immense prosperity. And I believe that we have much that we can learn about the prosperity that from, comes from God as we consider this text. And in it, I believe that we're really going to be able to see that prosperity is a gift from God. But it is always in His timing, and it's according to His ways. But when reading the Bible, it's always important to begin with the objective historical realities and the meaning of the text 
before we jump to what it would have for us to say. So this morning I would like to begin just by looking at what is going on here in these first few verses of the book of Joshua. Where does this fall within the context of scripture as a whole? And then we will consider what this will have to show us about the prosperity that is of God. So a little bit of background. Uh, the, the book of Joshua would be a fall within the genre uh, of historic literature. It's not poetic literature or, or a wisdom literature or apocalyptic literature, but it is historical literature. That is, it is telling about objective historic realities that God has done, specifically in redeeming a people to himself. We see the redemptive history uh, of Israel and uh, unfolding. And this opening chapter is a key turning point in the life of Israel, in the life of God's people. And in fact, the book of Joshua is opening up a new section of Scripture. Uh, for those of you who are familiar, the first five books of the Bible are, are kind of grouped together, the, the Pentateuch. Um, and that shows the beginning of God's work in calling a, a people to himself. God's beginning work of, of forming and shaping this nation, Israel, beginning with Abraham and the covenant promises that he gives him, to then Abraham's uh, family expanding through Isaac and Jacob, and then we have the story of the 12 tribes emerging, and then we have the whole Exodus account, and then this whole story where the, the people are about to be brought into the promised land. But because of the hardness of their heart, because of their unbelief, because of their sin, what was supposed to be a 40-day journey through the wilderness becomes 40 years of wandering under the punishment and chastising work of God. Uh, God uh, said that that generation would not be able to uh, enter into the promised land. And so what we have here in Joshua is the people, that generation has died off. And the people are now being brought in, about to be brought into the land. And this is a, really a new epoch for the people of God. It is the fulfillment of the final of the three promises that God had given to Abraham. In Genesis 12, in the first uh, expression of the Abrahamic covenant, God gives three promises to Abraham. He gives him a promise for his family. He tells Abraham that he, he will have to be the father of a great nation, and that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. God also blesses Abraham, and said, uh, promises Abraham blessing. He says that Abraham's descendants will be a blessing to the world, and he also says that he, God will bless those who bless Abraham's descendants, and that he will curse those who curse them. And then there's the third promise, the promise of the land, that there is a promised land that God has said that he would give the descendants of Abraham. And we see as we read the biblical storyline that the first two promises were fulfilled, or at least saw the beginning of their fulfillment in the Pentateuch. We saw that Abraham's descendants truly had grown to a great number in the millions. We also see that God had been faithful to the promise of blessing. That, that he had used his people as a blessing, and he had blessed those who blessed them and cursed those who cursed them. But the land promise had yet to be fulfilled, and that is what is about to happen. Joshua is now bringing about that third part of the promise to Abraham. 
And with the bringing of the people into the land, they enter a new chapter in the history of Israel. The land is going to be central to the story of Israel from this point forward in scriptures. Uh, the land is almost a character in and of itself as we're reading the Bible. And even when the people of Israel are taken away from the land because of the rebellion and in God's judgment, it is crucial to what's happening there is the fact that they are not in the land. And so that is really the, the big picture of what's happening with the book of Joshua and, and where we're going to find ourselves. Because as we zoom in now to this first chapter of Joshua, the first nine verses, we see here God is giving instructions to Joshua as he is about to bring the people into the land. Joshua has taken the place of Moses. Uh, no one could truly take the place of Moses as he, as he was claimed in scripture to be the greatest leader. But, so, but with fear and trepidation, Joshua steps in, not of his own initiative, but because God had appointed him as a leader. Not just to lead them physically, which he is, he is going to be the one who is physically leading them into the land. In verses 2 and 3, God directly tells Joshua that that's what he's going to be doing. And Joshua will also be leading them in the conquest. Those of you who know the book of Joshua, he's going to be leading them in many, in many battles and in many great things. But Joshua is not just the physical leader of the people, he is also the spiritual leader as well. We see here again in the first verse of Joshua that it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, now, we live in a time where people, many Christians, frequently use this language of God told me. We have to remember that God directly speaking to individuals is something that very rarely happens in Scripture. Uh, God does reveal himself in his word, and he reveals himself to his people, but the way that God is speaking to Joshua here is he is giving Joshua direct revelation. And Joshua then, as the, as the head of the people, is to then be the one who, who ministers that word to them and leads them in it. And he has been given this very uh, special role, not as just the physical leader, but the spiritual leader as well. And he is to lead them in the word of God and in, the, uh, and in God's ways. So as we, the first few verses, we see this um, commission that God has given to Joshua to lead the people into the land. God doesn't just leave him there. God actually warns Joshua as well. He shows Joshua and he tells him that this will be a challenging task. In verse 5, God speaks of the enemies that Joshua will have to face. In verse 6, we see hints that God is warning him that he will have to be leading a stubborn people. And in verse 7 through 8, God gives him the greatest warning of the most challenging aspect of the commission he has been given, which is to lead the people in righteousness and in the utmost conformity to the law that God has given them. But for each of these warnings, each of these uh, challenges that Joshua is to face, God reassures him that he is going to be with him. God doesn't just say, this is going to be tough, Joshua, but for each thing, he gives him encouragement and strength. So regarding his enemies, God says, yes, you'll face them, but no man will be able to stand before you. Amen. Regarding the stubborn people, 
God tells him to be strong and courageous. And you might say, well, how is that an encouragement? Well, it's an encouragement when it's coming from God, because he's not going to call Joshua to do something that he's not also going to equip him to do. And when it comes to the most challenging of the tasks that he will face, which is to lead the people in a perfect righteousness, in a perfect conformity to the word of God, God does not leave them there either. Because God does not give them a just-do-it theology, just figure it out. But God also provides the means to accomplish that as well. Because God tells them that they will have to uh, not let the word depart from their mouth and meditate it on the day and night. And we see that God, God serves his people through his word. And as we, we dwell in his word, we are then equipped to do what it says. And so it was with God... Uh, gave to Joshua. He gave him the means for leading the people in righteousness. And so this is really just a big picture of what we have here in these opening verses of Joshua. God has raised him up. God has given him orders. He has warned him of what they're going to be facing. But he has also encouraged him and strengthened him Ultimately, in the sense that God will be with him at every step of the way. In many ways, it seems like an impossible and challenging task. But God is so faithful to reassure Joshua in the task that he has been given. So having established the basic context of, this, of these verses, we're left with the question of so what? What does this have for us? Uh, uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that uh, God's word is profitable for um, correction and reproof and, and correction and training in righteousness. And God's word is to be applied to us. We can never just leave it at the historic. We can never just leave it at, at objectively what happened, but what is it that God has intended for us to learn? And there are so many things we could learn from these verses. We could draw leadership lessons from Joshua. And that despite God, uh, Joshua being a lesser leader than Moses, we can see how he needed to rely on God's strength to accomplish what seemed like an insurmountable task. We can also uh, draw lessons about God's faithfulness to his people and trace all the ways that he'd been faithful to lead his people to fulfill the promises to be with them at all times. But as my introduction indicated, I think I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning Zooming in and focusing in on this idea of prosperity. Because I really do think that that is central to what is happening here. This whole idea of being brought into the land. The people are being given a great prosperity. And God specifically promises prosperity to them if they follow in his word. And so that is what we'll be looking at for the rest of this morning. I just have to have a moment of confession that I had to rewrite a great deal of this yesterday as I continued to meditate on the meaning of this passage. Because I had come up with several points, and when I came back and was looking through them and even practicing, I realized all of these points have to do with material prosperity. And it just wasn't settling right. There was something wrong. And so I went back to this passage, which in so many ways at, at first reading does seem to be about material prosperity. But as I considered 
what was there and the riches that are in it, I realized that 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 is actually not, first and foremost, what this passage is about. Though it is there, there are much deeper lessons about the prosperity of God. And so when we consider this passage, I think that we have to see that this passage teaches us that first and foremost, prosperity is a spiritual reality. Now, prosperity is spiritual first. And I think we see this in the central exhortation of this text. And I think it's worth reading uh, again verses 7 through 8 as we see this. This is the heart of God's exhortation to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So I hope we see the order and the priority. The spiritual reality, the spiritual prospering of the people, the people being able to follow in God's ways precedes any other form of prosperity. And that this, the blessings of spiritual prosperity, of knowing God, are first. So what is spiritual prosperity? Well, foundational for this idea of spiritual prosperity is that prosperity is knowing God. Prosperity is knowing God. And we see just in the opening verse, it's so easy to take it for granted, so e- easy to uh, look past it, to, so easy to not see the significance of it, that the Lord spoke to Joshua. And there is a sense in which these are already an incredibly prosperous people. These are already the most prosperous people in the world because these are people who are in covenant relationship with the God and creator of all things. And Joshua is the representative of the head, head of the people who God speaks to, is the one who is bringing the word of God to the people of God. And we see that God relates to his people as a people. And as God is speaking to them, he is showing that they are his, that he knows them and they can know him. And people of God, let us not take lightly the riches we have in knowing the creator and sustainer of all things. There is nothing greater than that. This is not something that we can take for granted. It is not anything to take lightly. Take away everything else in life. But don't take away my Savior. Don't take away my covenant-keeping God. Do not take away my only true hope. Because without God, everything else is meaningless. Without the giver of all gifts, there is no true meaning in the physical world. And so God, knowing God, is true prosperity. But there are, but it, knowing God has a specific form. And so as we think about this idea that prosperity is knowing God, well, how does, how does that work out in real life? And there are several specific aspects of it that we see in this, in this text. So prosperity is knowing God's promises. In verse 2, we're reminded of the promise of the land, and uh, to go into the land which I am giving them. 
And God uh, reminds them that, uh, that this is a land that he has given them. It is theirs already. And God reminds them of the covenant promises that he gave to Abraham. And God relates to his people in real and tangible ways. God relates to us through promises. We could have an entire sermon just beginning to the surface of, of looking at all the promises of God. The people of God, do you know the promises of God? Do you cling to the promises of God? Just this past week, I had to cling to the promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where God says that the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That I was struggling with anxious thoughts. And I turned to that word, and it says that God will guard your hearts and minds. And as I clung to that promise, I found great peace because God is faithful to his promise. But do you see how you have to know the promises of God to cling to the promises of God? And this is one of the central ways in which God relates to his people. This is how you, you know God is through his promises. Knowing God isn't some just uh, vague, ethereal thing in which we feel him, but we know him through his word and what he has promised to us through his word. And as we cling to the promises is that we give him and see his faithfulness to it. That is the experience of knowing God. That is the experience of Joshua and the people that he was leading. And that is the experience of us to this day as the people of God. God also relates to his people by demonstrating that there is security in him. In verse 5, uh, it says that no man shall be able to stand before you. Uh, there was going to be great danger in going to the land. And again, those of you who know the book of Joshua know that, that God has worked so providentially in securing the people of Israel in battle, so long as they were doing it according to the dictates of God. But that was unique, a unique promise in history. That is, Christians are not given the promise that they won't face physical hardships, that they might not, that, that no person would be able to uh, stand against them in a physical altercation. So is this just something from the past? Like, well, God promised them that? Well, while we may not have a promise that there's not going to be any physical harm done to us in this life, we have a greater promise, which is that whatever does happen to us is part of God's perfect providence, and that there would be nothing better for us than whatever happens to us as his people. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God is working all things together for our good, but not just for everyone, but for those who are called according to his purpose. For God's own people, all things are too good. And so that there is a comfort in knowing God. And this is really just another one of those promises which we can cling to in knowing God in this life. Uh, there are some, there's so much more that could be said about the prosperity of knowing God. And, and there's a prosperity of just knowing God's presence. It's stated over and over again, even in this text, I will be with you. There's prosperity in knowing God's comfort, as we see God uh, being so um, steadfast in assuring Joshua of the comfort that he has. And it is all too easy to lose sight of the fact that prosperity is first and foremost about knowing God. Um, I have a buddy who, um, who was raised as a Christian, raised in a Christian home where he's going to church. And 
Um, but when he tells the story of his childhood, it's really sad to hear how consumed his parents had been, got caught up in material prosperity. You see, that they had this vision, they had this dream of building, building a massive uh, real estate portfolio. And it was done one home at a time, uh, buying houses that needed to be built up and uh, restored and then added to their uh, uh, pile of homes. Now, none of this is bad, but what ended up happening for, in his experience is it was all-consuming for his parents. Any extra money that they had, even though they were not poor, was poured into that, and they lived a very impoverished life, and all of his parents' extra time in the evenings was spent working on homes, and he was, uh, many evenings, just left at home alone. So coming into his late teens, his, his parents had finally accumulated this massive real estate empire. They bought, a, then, now that they were secure financially, they bought a big house, and what happened in this family, they, well, they just kind of each went to their own corner of the house with their own TV. Uh, they were spiritually impoverished. They had forgot the priorities of God in their home. They had put the material prosperity before the prosperity of knowing God, and it bore its fruits. Yes, they had attained their goals. Yes, they had achieved great material prosperity. And to this day, they have a nice big house. They eat out for every meal. Yet their relationship with their sons is only hanging on by a thread. And they've gotten caught up in a prosperity-type uh, church cult. And I'm guessing that these kind of stories are not rare. I'm guessing that each person in this room knows somebody. Somebody in the church. Hopefully not in this church, but it has been consumed by the prosperity that this world has to offer. And that has so consumed them that they have forgotten the prosperity that is in God. But as we also saw with Joshua, that the prosperity that is in God requires following God and putting his ways above all our ways as well. But this morning's sermon is not just about the reality of spiritual prosperity, because we do have to reckon with the idea of physical prosperity as well, with material prosperity as well. But before I can talk about uh, the fact that God does bless his people with material prosperity, we first have to say that God often withholds mis uh, material prosperity from his people. And this is where having the bigger picture of the book of Joshua comes into being helpful. Because if we look at the history of Israel, we see that sometimes God withholds material prosperity because of sin and unbelief. That was demonstrated just prior to Joshua in the, in the wilderness wandering. The people were supposed to be brought into the land. But because of their sin and unbelief, which is recounted in uh, Numbers 14, and then the sin of uh, Moses, who wasn't allowed to enter the land in Numbers 20, we see that because of their sin, God withheld material prosperity from an entire generation of Israel. And so sometimes God withholds his prosperity because of sin and unbelief. But it's also crucial to remember that when God withholds his material prosperity, that doesn't change his covenantal faithfulness to his people. Deuteronomy 8 Verses 2 through 5 is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Because it accounts of God's ways of working with the Israelites, of shaping them through the affliction, through the trial, through his chastisement, 
in their wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5 reads this. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your, your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so though the material blessing of the land had been withheld from them, God was still with them. They still had the greater blessing. But God does chastise his people. Sometimes for a season, sometimes for a lifetime. And he does often withhold material prosperity from them that doesn't change his love for them or their status as his covenant people. But also sometimes God withholds material blessing not because of sin and unbelief on the part of his people, sometimes because of his greater providential purposes. If we rewind a little bit further in the history of Israel and think about Israel's enslavement in Egypt... In my reading of scripture, there is no, no, no account that indicates that that was because of the sin on the parts of the Israelites. But it was because God had a greater providential purpose in the world and for them. And I think this is most clearly seen in Genesis chapter 15, where, where God is uh, it's the second iteration of his promises to Abraham. And he's talking about Abraham's descendants. And in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It says nothing that they seem to deserve this particularly, but as we keep reading and see at verse 16, we see at least one picture of God's greater providential work. Where in verse 16 it says, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the Amorites were the people in the land of Canaan, the, the, the promised land, and that we see that God is, is waiting to bring his people into that land because the people who currently inhabit it are still having wrath heaped up upon them. So that when God brings the people into the land of Israel, not only is he going to be delivering his promise and faithfulness to them by giving it to them, but he is also going to be using the Israelites as an agent of his wrath against those who for 400 plus years have been demonstrating their hardness of heart and rebellion toward him uh, being stuck in their idolatry. That would not have happened had not God given it that full time. And his purposes was for things to wait. And he, he, you see that he had a greater purpose. Now, God was God unfaithful to his people while they were in Egypt? While they were enslaved? No, he was near them, he was with them. They still had the greater blessing. And he continued to work in them and be faithful to them. And as I, as I thought about God withholding material prosperity, material blessings, I, uh, a friend of mine came to mind. I, uh, he, I first met him in high school. And then when I came back uh, to the faith when I was uh, 21, 22, he was at a similar stage of life. And I haven't seen him for about 10 years, or very infrequently. Though his wife was for a period of time... Our, our children's doctor. And I got to catch up with him a couple months ago. And it was a very sad 
a tragic story that she um, was struck with Lyme disease a couple of years ago. And it, it was especially vicious and rapid in its onset. And she currently, to this day, is mostly house-ridden. Uh, from her description, she has to have her eyes covered at most times because of extreme light sensitivity. I believe there's also auditory uh, sensitivity uh, leading her in an extremely painful existence. There are, I guess, large periods of the day in which she even has to be in a closet just to isolate herself from the light and the sound that just becomes intolerable. And it was, I could see the pain in my friend's face as he was telling me about his wife and the trial that this was. And I asked my friend, so concerned about where they were spiritually, I said, how's her faith? And his response, her faith has never been stronger. So God does withhold material prosperity from his people at times. But he never withdraws himself from his people. And our final point then, God does bless his people with material prosperity. We can't deny this. And it's a, a fact that we have to reckon with. This passage right here is all about God bringing them to the land, and he even tells them that they will be prosperous. And I was, uh, just think about the Bible. Let's just begin at the beginning. God, God wants to bless his people. Uh, God wants to bless Adam and Eve, and he get, puts, places them in this great garden. Abraham was a very wealthy man. You think of all the major characters in the Bible, and they, many of the greatest Bible heroes were men who had been given great material prosperity. So while God does withhold pros material prosperity, sometimes he also blesses his uh, people of prosperity. And like I said, we here in America in the 21st century, we've been blessed. We, and we know people who've been blessed materially even beyond us. So what do we make of this? Well, let's think of, about a few pieces of the material prosperity that God does give. Well, first of all, how does God give prosperity? God gives freely and he gives sovereignly. But it's interesting how when God gives things, He's also, that doesn't contradict God calling his people to work for those things. He offers them great things. He says even, I have given you this. This is yours, but you're going to work for it. But then he doesn't just say, you're going to work for it. Good luck at that. He says, it's yours. You work for it. And I'm going to be near you and with you and guiding you and giving you everything you need to then attain it. And that's what we see here in the book of Joshua. Just think of uh, one of the first directives that God gave to him. Which in verse 2 he says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan. So easily just lost over. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to take over a million people across this body of water? How? There's no bridge. How are we going to get across it? God commands him to go across it. And they're supposed to go marching towards it in faith. And what does God do? He, he, he split the water for them, and they're able to pass through. So we see that God promised, 
He called them to action, and then he provided the means to then accomplish it. And that is the repeated pattern we see throughout the book of Joshua. The people are to go into the land. They are to work. They are to do so in faith, to claim what's already been given them. But even as they go and do that work, each step of the way, God is near them. And there is so much application there for us in our lives. that God does give us great gifts, but that doesn't negate the fact that God calls us to be a diligent, working people. He puts tasks before us. He sometimes puts incredibly difficult tasks, tasks that in human eyes seem impossible, tasks that according to human eyes seem absurd. But when he has called us to a work and he says, this is yours, he is also near and with as he brings his people into that prosperity. But why does God give material blessings? Wouldn't we be better off without it? Wouldn't, uh, aren't material blessings just a hindrance? Uh, aren't material blessings just something that would lure us away from the spiritual nature of God? Well, no. There are, we can't downplay the fact that there are great temptations Immaterial blessings. The Bible is filled with warnings against that. But that doesn't make material blessings a bad thing in themselves, and it doesn't make material blessings a thing that aren't for God. So why does he give them? Well, first and foremost, we must acknowledge that material blessings are an outward demonstration of his care for us. Not the ultimate, but also not insignificant. We are material beings. And God does show blessings at times through material ways. And those material blessings aren't bad. And I, the, the reason I think it's important to stress this, because if we allow ourselves to detach the material blessings we have as being good gifts from God, where does the praise go? Where do our minds go? But when we remember that those material good things that we've been given are from God, that should turn our hearts to daily and regularly give thanks to God, knowing that at any moment they could be taken away, and at any moment God would be equally as good and faithful to us as his people. Amen. Amen. But while we have them, to him alone belongs the glory. And this should, that he should stir our hearts to gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only reason why God materially blesses his people. He also gives uh, blessings so that we can be a blessing. If we think back to that original Abrahamic comment that said he would be a promise in the world. That, he would, that they would be a blessing in the world. And um, this aspect of the promise isn't necessarily obvious on the face of this text. There's not really much here about talking about the Israelites being a blessing. In fact, they are going to be an instrument of God's wrath against the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And we say, well, how is this a blessing to the world? Well, I think that verses 7 through 8, that central exhortation I quoted earlier, is also crucial in this. Because as God gives the people a land, he gives them this place, they are going to be a beacon of light in a pagan, dark, and fallen world. Their mere presence in the land is a blessing. 
because of witnesses to the triune God. And that is why God is so emphatic in those verses to tell Joshua that he must lead the people in this perfect righteousness. Because he can't have this people who he has stamped his name upon and who all the world is looking at and saying, something is going on there. These people claim to worship Yahweh and they're different from everything, from anything else we have seen in this world. If they are then living their lives like the people of the world. So as a, as a beacon of, and a witness to God and his, the faithful covenant God of Israel, they are a blessing. And so, when we receive material blessings, our material blessings allow us to have an existence in this world, to have uh, buildings in communities. These material blessings allow us to have a presence in this life, allow us to uh, interact with others. Because life isn't... Cheap life isn't easy, and we, but as God gives us things, and we are faithful to his ways, including our management of those gifts that he has given us, we then get to show the world what it means to be a faithful steward of what has been given. We get to, to show the world who this God of ours is, as he calls us to be in it. So as we consider the giving of these material blessings... We have to ask ourselves, are we a people who give thanks? Are we a people who daily consider the lavish blessings that have been poured out on us and regularly take time to give thanks to God for it? In our families, men, as you lead your homes, do you take time as your families to, to just express gratitude for the good things that God has given? Uh -huh. People, in your personal and private prayers, do you just thank God for the goodness he has shown you? Yes, in making himself known to you, but don't forget the, thing, the material things that God has given to you, because those are blessings as well. And then the second question is, do we use our prosperity to be a presence and a blessing in the world? God has given us great things, and we will have to one day give an account for our use of what we've been given. Did we use it to witness to God in his goodness? Did we use it for his purposes? Or did we use what he had given us for our own gain, for our own, uh, exclusively for our own gain and own delight and our own pleasure? Let's remember that God, yes, gives it as an expression of his goodness to us, but also so that we can be a blessing, so that we can be generous with what he's given and be a light to the world. Now as we wrap things up, and if you were paying attention to the bulletin this morning, you will have seen that uh, the title of the sermon was Gospel Prosperity. I don't know if that uh, sent any red flags up when you saw that. What, what do we have coming our way? A little uh, flipperoo on prosperity gospel, gospel prosperity. And I hope that you're asking yourself, well, where's the gospel in this? Okay? Uh, you talked a lot about prosperity. You talked about God's faithfulness. And if you ask yourself, there is a sense in which you would be correct. Like, where's the gospel? Because I did not mention the historic work that Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago. The fact that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, that God became flesh, 100% God, 100% man, that he took on human flesh, lived the perfect life, 
lived a life we could not live, died a death we could not die, and then he conquered death. He raised from the dead. And then he ascended to to sit at the right hand of the Father, sending the Holy Spirit. And this is our hope, and I just need to be clear, that everything that I said today about the prosperity of knowing God, about the prosperity of God, is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to know that God is through his Son. And I hope that today, if there's anybody in here who has never repented, turned from their sins, and clung to Christ, that you would be able to see the richness that God has to offer to those who are his own. But those promises are only to his own. These are not general promises uh, to everybody, but those who through Christ know God as their God and who can call him Father. And the only way you can cling to that is by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. This Christ is our King. This is the Christ that we worship here today. It is the Christ who gave his body for us, and it is that body that we are going to be remembering and receiving shortly as we receive the elements that he's given to us. May God be with us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, it is a great blessing, honor, and privilege to be called to be a part of your people. It is a great joy to be gathered as your people to come before you in prayer, to come before you in song, to come before you receiving good things from you, receiving good things from your word. I do pray that this word today from the book of Joshua would not have hit deaf ears, would not have hit hardened hearts, but that this word would sink in, and even this week, that there would be a point of deep meditation and consideration of what you had for your people in these words. We know that your word does not return void. So, Father, show your faithfulness to us. May your return, your word be planted deeply and bear much fruit. Father, bless your people today. May we remember that the ultimate blessing is knowing you as our God. And may you be faithful with the things that you have given us. Pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.